totally at the World Cup. You must be kicking yourself for not walking out when you call. and it's an Argentina returner and Messi is simply the best. Into the last 16 they go, a side with Armani making great strides. Also in Tuesday's action, France-Denmark in the World Cup's first goalless game trust the Danes to be there when nils are involved and Peru leaves with a high, which is Guerrero's recipe for tea, possibly. On Wednesday, Group F, leaders Mexico are through. Sweden, Germany and South Korea all have a chance of joining them. And Group E, Costa Rica are out, but only one point separates the other three teams, Brazil, Switzerland and Serbia. What will happen? Our thoughts on the way in Totally at the World Cup. You're totally at the World Cup features today. Tom Williams. Hi, Tom. Hello, James. Jack Lang's here with us as well. Good evening. And so's Daniel Story. Good evening. Talking of stories, Daniel, what? An incredible bit of drama we witnessed on... What day of the week is it? It's Tuesday, and I only know that because I had to check. On Tuesday evening. Mm. Wow. Wow. These games, this this group finale with the goals going in here, VAR going off there, teams going out over there, and then back in again. Wow. I always think with the World Cup, the first games are generally tense and everyone gets a bit worried and calls it the worst worst World Cup ever. The second games, teams normally have something they have to do, so you generally see a bit more pro-action, I think. And then ideally, the third games are absolute chaos. And in well, certainly the last two evenings, that's exactly what we've seen, the absolute chaos. Well, tonight was all about Iceland against Croatia, which had stuff going on. But then there was this Argentina-Nigeria game, which I think had captured everyone's imagination because... Argentina were on the verge of going out repeatedly. Tom? Yes, they were. Well, for a long time, they were out in the as-it-stands table uh, until that incredible late volley from Marcus Rojo, who chooses the 86th minute of his nation's biggest match for four years to use his right foot for the first time in a game of football. But yeah, incredible game. I I felt very sorry for Nigeria. I mean, they're clearly a very young team and you feel that their time will come again. But they played so well, didn't do much wrong, didn't actually concede that many chances and looked like they were about to hold out. But as we've seen so often in this tournament already, when the big teams are finishing that strongly and with the amount of... I, mean, I was going to say with the amount of talented attacking players, and it's Rojo who scores the goal, but it has been a theme that you know those big teams hammer away and, and end up getting a goal somehow in the end. Jack, a crazy finale, but let's go back to the, the best bit of all, when Eva Benega, finally in the lineup, put that ball upfield for Leo Messi. Absolutely magnificent. One of the goals of the tournament so far. Beyond Just, just talk us through doubt. it for any, any folk who didn't see it. Sure, so Eva Benega had started the game really well making a mockery of the fact he'd only played 35 minutes across the first two games. Knock it around nicely. It obviously made all the difference to Argentina's rhythm. And then he looks up, sees Lionel Messi peeling away from the left-sided centre-back, Kenneth Omaruo, and just lofts a gorgeous ball over the top, but still a lot of work for Messi to do at that so point. So Messi and Omaruo are running side by side. And how old is Omaruo? Young enough to still be playing for Chelsea in some respect. Right, OK, got you. OK, but, but Messi's keeping up. 
Yeah, Messi's keeping up and then he's bringing the ball down on his thigh at full speed, the ball coming over his shoulder. Right. And then he managed to get another touch in before the ball even touches the floor. And he's running pretty much towards the corner flag while all this is going on. At full pelt and Amorio is sprinting yet can't keep up with him. Messi gets two touches in and then has the ice in his veins to lift the ball past Francis Azo with his right foot. One of the great World Cup goals to this point, I think. It sounds so simple when you say it. And it, and it sounded like this. Benega, look at the ball. Messi brings it down. In the box. Messi, goal. Argentina leads. Just incredible. It's nice as well because I think, according to the Argentine media, it was Messi who had asked for Benega to be included in the lineup. Right. It's uh, kind of, they go back a long way. They used to play in the same league when they were kids uh, in Rosario. And just the connection that was visible a few times in those opening exchanges just really came to the boil and that glorious moment is almost telepathic. So at that point, we're all thinking, oh, fantastic, Argentina had turned out. But that's not how the, the, the next 80 minutes went. No, you said before, James, that someone is picking that team. We're not quite sure who it is. My theory is it has to be Javier Mascherano because that can be the only reason that Mascherano is still starting in central midfield. I kind of, well, I felt for him a little bit because I thought the penalty was very soft that he gave away holding Balogun, but it's Mascherano. All through this tournament, he's looked ungainly, he's looked immobile. I have not watched much of him in China, but being very stereotypical, it's a league at his age that he's gone to because he cannot keep up in La Liga anymore. And he looks that player for Argentina. He He's completely out of sorts and they need to find someone else for the next game because at the end of the game, I mean, if Argentina hadn't gone through, there was time, two or three times he was chasing down the referee, he was chasing down opponents, he had blood spawning down his head, which... If this was England 1986 or 1988, you might think, oh, it's heroic, it's patriotic. But actually, Jorge Valdano wrote a piece, um, it was in The Guardian uh, today, where he talked about Argentina is a team that talks about demanding balls and courage and fight. And actually, that's the last thing they need. They're better than everyone else at talent. And Mascherano kind of sums up Valdano's criticism of that because he is all passion and balls and fight at the moment, but, but no quality. So Mascherano's busy distributing the ball in all directions but forward and Benega's drifted backwards as well and all of a sudden Argentina are looking bereft of ideas again. Nigeria then equalise against Argentina and now it looks like it's going to be Messi's goal, the most bittersweet moment of the World Cup. Yeah, Nigeria win a penalty and one of the softer penalties we've seen, but one where once you looked at it and realised that the ref was going to check the video, it was fairly inevitable that he was going to give the uh, give the decision. Victor Moses takes an ice-cool penalty, sends uh, Armani the wrong way. I thought Moses had a really, really good game. And then I thought Nigeria generally handled things quite well. Gernot Raw made uh, a decisive move at half-time, sending on Odion Igalo in place of Kelechi Iheanacho, who hadn't had a very good first half. Igalo gave them a lot more running in behind alongside Ahmed Musa and had a couple of really good chances uh, when the game was still at 1-1. One where the ball flicked up off Rojo's arm and he volleyed it wide, and another one where he got in behind on the left-hand side and had a shot saved. They weren't doing that much wrong, Nigeria. They were With this new system that they've started, started using, the 3-5-2, they've got lots of men in the middle of the park, You've got the pace of Moses and Idowu on the flanks, and you had you had Musa and Igalo up front. Um, and it was only the last sort of 10, 15 minutes Argentina started making chances. Higuain blazes one over the crossbar, and we wondered whether that was the chance that they couldn't afford to miss. But then a few minutes later, Rojo pops up Rojo. with the winner. Yeah. Cometh the hour, cometh the Marcus Rojo. Extraordinary. Well, you have to feel bad for Nigeria 
But what might this mean for fans in Argentina? Well, we dialed up uh, the host of the Hand of Pod, Argentine football podcast, Sam Kelly, and asked him briefly about the kind of pressures that this Argentina side is dealing with. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. There's the whole old cliche of, uh, of of national teams being used by governments, particularly at World Cups. But the domestic football situation in Argentina is also enormously complicated at the moment. The Argentine FA, as as people who who read around about world football and South American football are probably already aware, has been in a state of chaos really for a few years and, and is is in this sort of process which began four years ago but is only really properly getting going now after a couple of false starts of sort of de-grandonaisation since Julio Grandona, the former FIFA vice president and very long time AFA president, died shortly after the last World Cup. This is always the kind of process... Um, that gets leaned on enormously by Argentine governments and, and by opposing parties. They all have their own interests. It, it's particularly easy to illustrate quite pithily in the case of the current Argentine government, because the current president of Argentina, Mauricio Macri, is a former president of Boca Juniors. That, that's where his power base sort of started to be built up. That's where he first began his, his journey um, on the road to political success. And so now he's got his friends inside the association, competing factions, opposition have got their own ideas about what they would like to happen at what is, after all, perhaps the country's most visible cultural or sporting organisation. And everybody has their own ideas about what, what needs to happen in Argentine football. And very few of them are good ones, unfortunately. So is that one of the reasons that, that the Argentine team is having trouble, that there's, there's so many different people pulling in different directions behind the scenes? Yeah, it, it's, it's one of a whole load of reasons, which, in my opinion, begin with Jose Pekerman and his team leaving in 2006 and after that the the youth system which Peckerman was previously overseeing got effectively dismantled because Grondona put, put his own son in charge of it and, and nothing ended up happening for about a decade. That didn't help but all, obviously all the disarray at the top of the organisation seeps down to the players. There were arguments between players and organisers when the uh, the AFA were, were run by different people a couple of years ago at the Copa America Centenario the players weren't happy with how transportation, for instance, from match to match was being sorted out and so on. Argentina, and in particular the Argentine Football Association and the Argentine national team, are one of the more visible examples of just how boardroom disquiet can can seep down onto the pitch, whether it's at, at club level or, in this case, uh, at national team level. Sam Kelly of Hand of God. What do you think about Argentina's prospects against France, Daniel? I would say ordinarily not particularly good because they are still a ramshackle unit. Comparatively, they attacked with some vigour and they actually defended with some strength tonight, but that's only as a comparison to the pretty miserable mean from the rest of this tournament and and in the months leading up to this tournament. So Georges Sampaoli before the game talked about five finals and if there is any sense of of unity still in that squad, now they're in the knockout stages, of course every game matters more and more and, and France have not turned up so far in this tournament and if, if Argentina can continue that Benega-Messi relationship then there's no reason why they can't trouble France. Jack, you were pointing out how Sampaoli was celebrating on his own the the, the, uh, the Rojo winner and then at the final whistle was, was off down the tunnel on his own while all the players were celebrating on the, on the field. What do you think the prospects are of Argentina finding some kind of harmony of, of this being the start of something new and more positive? 
Well, I think often teams are forged in adversity, we can say that, and there certainly look to be, on the field at least, a good deal more unity there tonight. The, the, you know, the sight of Lionel Messi in the dying moments, putting in crunching tackles and chasing down uh, defenders, completely just making a nonsense of the notion that he doesn't care. And obviously, Sampaoli cut a pretty solitary figure there, went down the tunnel on his own at the end. But at the same time, you've got up in the stands, Diego Maradona. And it was almost biblical, the way Lionel Messi on the on the field, scoring that goal. Up above, you've got God watching on, but except he's not striking some statesmanly pose. He looks like he's on a bender. You have Moses uh, down on the field as well. Moses is there. God's then falling asleep at some point <laughs> in the second half. Heaven knows what God has got up to this evening. And then you have Mascherano bleeding from the temple. It was incredible right. scenes. Wonderful. Very nice. Very nice. So then, Group D finishes with a 2-1 win for Argentina over Nigeria. Croatia with the same winning margin over Iceland. The other game in that group. In the afternoon games, it was a 2-0 win for Peru. Hooray. Over Australia. Both teams now exit. Denmark and France, who had a nil-nil at the Luzhniki, go through. And the last 16 games are France against Argentina and Denmark against Croatia. Andrew Gaffney says, my thoughts with everyone who has to do a five things we learned about Denmark v France today. Daniel, did you do one of those? I very much didn't, know, so I can celebrate how bad it was. There haven't been many games to rival Switzerland-Ukraine. Just hear the boos of the crowd in the background there. <laughs> they vociferous boos. It was a dreadful game. It w- I was particularly disappointed with France, obviously, because Didier Deschamps decided to make a few changes and spoke pre-game about Yes, he was resting players, but he also wanted players to take their chance and prove why they should be in the team. And and in play, you know, they had Olivier Giroud, who's now started two games. They had Dembele, who's now started two games. Antoine Griezmann played his third game. This was not a, you know, this was no scratch team. And they were dismal. They didn't try to create. Denmark played as Denmark have all tournament, which is particularly boring. And I kind of hope they lose to Croatia. Mm-hmm. But France were, were dismal again. But you're not the only person who thinks that. Our friend Julien Laurent was there and the Luzhniki who sent us this message at the final whistle. Well, that was that was bad. That was really, really, really bad from France. And then Denmark, to be fair, but more from France. I expected so much more. I wanted the uh, the guys who came in, the team, Lemar, Dembele, Sidibe, even Nzonzi, to do far more better than what they did. I thought it was a pathetic performance. The booze at the end... From, from the whole stadium, I think, said it all. The worst game of the competition so far, literally, like you would have fallen asleep and woken up and nothing would have happened anyway. It was, it was that bad. Um, so in a way, the, you know, the gamble that Deschamps took didn't pay off by changing half of the team. And you can also say that he, you know, he might break a bit the, the momentum that the French got from the second game. But in the end, job's done. The top of the group avoided Croatia. In the, uh, in the last 16, which was what they wanted. And I think that's what Deschamps is going to remember, plus the clean sheets. Uh, but my word, that was really bad. Julien Laurent of ESPN FC. Tom, nothing new about this approach from France in the final group game of a major tournament. The last three tournaments under Deschamps, they've had nil-nil draws in each. This is what Didier Deschamps does when he gets to the third group stage match at a big tournament. I remember I was at France-Ecuador at the 2014 World Cup. That was nil-nil and terrible. And then two years later, they played Switzerland at the Euro and that was nil-nil and terrible. And again, 
today's game against Denmark was dreadful. The worst match at the tournament by a country mile. And in each of those games, Deschamps has done the same thing. He's mixed his team up and it's been basically half starters, half people he's wanting to try out. What didn't help the match was the fact that Peru scored very early in their game against Australia. I think they went ahead in the 18th minute. Mm. And for there to be any sort of tension in that France-Denmark game, we needed the possibility that Australia might win and and put Denmark under pressure. But as soon as Peru took control of that game, that wasn't going to happen. If anything, the onus was more on Denmark to attack because Mm. France knew a draw gave them top spot there's no point in them running themselves into the ground they've basically done the hard work and as a result we got this impossibly turgid game almost sort of shades of germany austria 1982 that i mean not that bad but the last 10 15 minutes just sideways pass after sideways pass the fans in the stadium are booing and whistling it was very much last day of the italian season wasn't it Mm. they say you can't turn it on you know if you if you're in second gear and you need to switch it on when you hit the, the knockout stages. Is that true, though? I would have thought if you're a professional footballer, you probably can go. I think if you, I think if you put a first team out and say play at half pace, I think that's very difficult to then switch up. I think if you make a lot of changes and play at half pace, I think there's a kind of a logic as to the reason for the poor performance. And therefore, when you bring in the first teamers back, you expect them to to click forward. There's no real reason for France to worry because they've gone through three matches, uh, they've picked up seven points, they've only played well for 25 minutes in the first half of their win over Peru and yet they're top of the group. Okay, they've not got a great draw. We don't really know what to expect from Argentina. That's not the draw they would have picked before the group stage but... You know, I, I don't imagine Deschamps would have too much difficulty defending the decisions he's taken because so far, apart from the fact their football's been pretty appalling, they're very much on track. And we've um, seen at the last two tournaments right. similar things with France. I mean, they weren't great at, at the Euro. Um, I remember they needed that dramatic late Dimitri Payet game to beat Romania in their opening game. But then in, in the knockout phase, they clicked, beat Ireland. They had a big win against Iceland. Uh, and then a fantastic win against Germany at the Velodrome in the semi-final. So they grew into the tournament, which is what teams want to do. So it has been no fun watching France so far at all, but I wouldn't be too concerned about them. All right. But as Williams says, uh, the team with this, this match pushed me to verse. You're right. So there was an old team from Peru whose World Cup was done by round two, but their fans cheered them on in the hot Sochi sun and knocked out the poor Socceroo. That's very nice, isn't it? Not for Australia, of course, because they did have hopes of possibly making the last 16. Hopes that were ended by a fabulous goal from what was Carrillo, no, Jack? Yeah, lovely goal on the volley. This was a good game, actually. I thankfully dodged Denmark v France and chose this one. Uh, And it was, yeah, good fun. The first goal, as you say, Paolo Guerrero, who uh, just pulled away from... Trent Sainsbury, mm-hmm. the supermarket sweeper, ha. and putting a ball in. Creo just pinged it in first time, far corner. Lovely stuff. And then Peru just went from strength to strength. They uh, scored another after the break through Guerrero. And Australia's game plan of you know kicking the ball at an opponent's hand came to nothing this mm. time. Peru played very nicely. And eventually Australia threw on Tim Cahill to no real effect. And you wonder... In future World Cups, if they're just going to be wheeling out his weekend at Bernie style, disembodied, <laughs> wrinkled forehead on a plinth, but it, you know, I'm sure it'd be just as effective as he was today. Peru and Morocco last night, there feel some very obvious similarities with those two in that both teams 
played probably a weaker team in their first match. Peru were better than Denmark, Morocco were better than Iran, and somehow contrived to lose 1-0, and were therefore both out after two games. But both in terms of the supporters and I think the players as well have retained a huge amount of goodwill. So it's really, although the games were meaningless, it's actually been really nice to see both of them play some pretty good football last two days. Didn't look meaningless for the Peruvian fans there. No. In tears to see their their first World Cup goal since when, 78? Mm -hmm. 82. Oh, sorry, since 82. But their first World Cup win since 78. Yes. Wow. So that's nice. So now there's only one team that hasn't scored in this World Cup, and that's Costa Rica. But they'll get their chance in Wednesday's fixtures. Let's take a quick pause and then come right back at you with Groups E and F. Unbelievable, unbelievable this. Yes, yes, yes. Breaking news, Daniel's story. Hector Cooper has left his role as Egypt manager, which I think was probably the most predictable World Cup fallout. I'm surprised, I'd be surprised if he made it back to Egyptian soil before the news came through. Really? Okay. Another bit of news from you, the 2018-19 Champions League is underway. Yes, shout out to uh, FC Drita of Kosovo, who became the first Kosovan side to win a Champions League game and are now, as we speak, the only ever unbeaten side in Champions League history. Kosovo, that's topical. Let's have a look then at Wednesday's fixtures in the good old World Cup. Group E in the evening. Now, Costa Rica are out. The other three, Brazil, Switzerland and Serbia, have just a point between them. The Swiss have the easier-looking game against Costa Rica at Nizhny Novgorod, while Serbia and Brazil face each other at the Spartak Arena in Moscow. In Group F in the afternoon, Mexico are leading here. Three points clear of Germany and Sweden. The Mexicans face the Swedes in Ekaterinburg, while Germany play South Korea, who do still themselves have a teeny chance making it to the last 16. Let's hear some previews. Let's start with the afternoon games and South Korea taking on Germany. Germany must beat South Korea by two or more goals or better Sweden's result against Mexico to guarantee their qualification. Of course, Germany, Tom, coming off that extraordinary Tony Cruz match winner, last-minute match winner against Sweden. What would that mean, do you think, to the Mannschaft? A lot, uh, an awful lot. I mean, probably the most dramatic finish to a game that I think we've seen, which is saying a lot, given how many thrilling finales there have been already. Uh, The first time that Germany had come from behind to win at a World Cup since 1998, which shows how rare it is for them to find themselves in the sort of pickle they were facing in that match. Um, And clearly it's a huge weight off the team's shoulders, off Jürgi Löw's shoulders, but at the same time they're not yet through and uh, South Korea uh, okay they, they have a very thin chance of, of making the last 16 you know that they won't be walkovers I think that the interesting issue from Germany's perspective is whether Jürgi Love sticks with the team that he picked against Sweden obviously he dropped Sami Kadira and Mesut Ozil and in the end those ended up being gambles that paid off but it wasn't a particularly convincing performance so I suppose the question is were those two players just temporarily put on the naughty step if you like or is this going to be a long-term thing have Kadir and Ozil lost Love's trust uh, and is he going to move on in this in this new direction so it'll be interesting to see what sort of team he, he puts out Love's labour's lost potentially Tom 
Potentially, yes. Two figures who will not be able to keep a close eye on proceedings are German team officials Ulrich Voigt and Jörg ah. Bellau, who have been banned from going anywhere near the touchline after reacting to Tony Cruz's winner like yeah. a couple of boisterous Year 10 students uh, and going yeah. and rubbing it in the faces of that their... That was unpleasant. Pa- that was yeah. unpleasant. It was quite a sort of old Germany, kind of like nasty mm. 90s Germany. Germany yeah, yeah, I thought we'd sort of move beyond that. I quite enjoyed it, but obviously not the sort of thing we like to see. No. Uh, a reminder that Germany have made it to at least the quarterfinals in each of the last nine World Cups and they made it to the semi-finals at least of every uh, major tournament since 2002 so huh uh, Mexico meanwhile taking on Sweden in Yekaterinburg Mexico just need a point to go through and top the group and Sweden are guaranteed to qualify if they win or better Germany's result uh, and then kind of other ramifications but that's the gist of it this this reads to me, is being kind of perfect for Mexico because they can just sit back and hit Sweden on the break, which is what they like to do. Yeah, although it will be interesting to see if if Azoria rests players for the game. They've got a reasonably thin squad, Mexico, certainly thinner than most other group winners. You don't see much depth there? No, I don't, know. I mean, they've been brilliant in this tournament, mm. but they've been brilliant because of... Um, the performances we expected from Lozano and Hector Herrera and the overperformance, I think, of the defence. Um, and if they, they do want to rest players and they, they can afford to, you know, their, their performances in this tournament allow them to do so, take their foot off the gas, then we know Sweden are not a particularly aesthetically pleasing side, but they are damn effective and they will feel very hard done to after the Germany game. So yeah, they... what, what do you think will be the mood in the Swedish camp? Will they be burning with indignation or will they be crestfallen after that late late goal robbed them. Well, it seems like they're using it in the right way. Jan Andersson has said that he felt provoked by that Germany reaction. Uh-huh. And there's also been the the ugly stuff involving Jimmy Dermas, the uh, racial abuse and the squad kind of uh, crowding around him really to show their support of him. And apparently, according to Andreas Granqvist, the, the defender that really has knitted the squad together more than they were before. Uh, so I don't think they will lack for spirit and desire, but I think they will lack for uh, tactical acumen, perhaps against a, a manager who has shown himself to be very good at devising strategies for these games. Who's going through? Do you think Mexico and Germany? Tom? Yeah, no, I, th- I think Mexico, Germany. I mean, I, I like Sweden. They're obviously very unlucky against Germany, but the one thing they're not designed for is going out and, and winning games. Um, Mexico have no need to attack them, so yeah, I think Germany, Germany, Mexico, probably. All right, whoever goes through will be facing opponents in the last sixteen from Group E which will be our Wednesday evening entertainment. The games there are Brazil against Serbia and Switzerland against Costa Rica. Switzerland, who provided us with one of the thrilling finales among the many that we've had at this World Cup, in their clash with Serbia, this, that extraordinary moment when Shakiri's little legs whizzed him upfield for what proved to be the winner against Serbia all the way back at the end of last week. That was last Friday. And, of course, since then, they've had the terrific news for them of the disciplinary decision that they're not going to have Jordan Shakiri and Granit Xhaka suspended for two games. I mean, effectively, that's like two new signings for them, isn't it? I think they've been pretty fortunate, given, particularly given how UEFA generally deal with these things, which is reasonably heavy-handed. It, it seems like FIFA have chosen to be as apolitical as they can and basically said, slap on the wrist and we're not getting involved which is the predictable outcome Serbia were fi- actually fined more than Switzerland were for the incidents which given their reaction and their behaviour during this tournament from their management will probably go down pretty badly mm. Well what about Switzerland then they've come up against some top sides in this World Cup and they've proved they're, they're equal 
but they're still one of the more underrated teams in the tournament. To find out a little bit more then about the side, we caught up with Oliver Zesiger, a football scout in Switzerland, and even more excitingly, a researcher for Football Manager. Here's his thoughts on what Switzerland can do in this World Cup. Switzerland is basically irrelevant to the other football world. But it doesn't matter. I mean, we went to qualifying uh, with nine wins out of ten, only lost to Portugal away. It's not spectacular football. That's why maybe people don't notice Switzerland as, as much. Um, it's more uh, result-oriented football, even though that has uh, improved since Hitzfelter was, uh, has gone. But uh, the rest of the world underestimated us a little bit. Let's see how we do against Costa Rica, because uh, Serbia, we were pretty evenly matched. Brazil, we couldn't lose, basically. And now it's a, a must-win game, pretty much, against Costa Rica. And let's see how we do then. Well, a big win here against Los Ticos, Oliver. And you could take the group. How is Petkovic going to set this team up? I think that's the goal. I think the goal is to win the group, then take whatever comes. I mean, Germany would be great. There's a little bit of a rivalry going on between Swiss and Germany. I personally would prefer to go uh, go up against Sweden because there's a realistic chance that we could advance and Mexico is the big unknown for me. Team news, I think there will be a change in strike in the striking position. Seferovic didn't have a good game against Brazil, had had a really bad game against Serbia. I think he had two touches in 45 minutes. And Gavranovic came on, had two chances, uh, played a great pass on to Shakiri for the winning goal. And uh, I think Gavranovic will start against Costa Rica. There's another uh, position where I have question marks is behind Jemaili in attacking midfield position. Maybe Embolo will start for him, which would mean basically a two-striker formation. I think Seferovic is the one who has to go to the bench. Well, dominating the reaction to the win over Serbia was the uh, the eagle celebrations that Shaq and Shakiri did. It, amongst Switzerland's kind of diverse and, and multicultural population, what was the reaction to that and to the prospect of, of them being punished and even potentially suspended? Um, it was pretty supportive, but there was a vocal minority who uh, selected them for, uh, for the celebrations. They're not Swiss, etc., etc., Probably the same crowd that would go after uh, Raheem Sterling in England, I think, uh, gun tattoo and everything he does. But generally, the impression I had was that they could have been smarter not doing the celebration, but uh, we all know their history. We know the history with Chaka and his father. Uh, Shakiri was born in Kosovo. Uh, we know the history of Serbia and Albania. And there's a pretty big understanding, of course, of how, uh, of why they did it. But the general interest was huge. I mean, the amount of uh, newspaper articles that came out, TV shows that spoke about it, uh, it was exceptional. And you could see from there that uh, there was a really big interest in that whole story. And in the end, I think we we're all relieved that FIFA only punished them by giving them a fine. Oliver Sessiger, uh, and tell you who did like those goals, and that's Albanian television. Have a listen to this. Shot it! Woohoo! This is a very exciting Switzerland team, isn't it, Jack? I don't know if they're exciting, James, but I have. They were against Serbia. Been fairly positive about their chances since before the tournament, actually. I think they've got a good record of grinding their way through these competitions. They're not going to win it. I fancy them to get out of the group ahead of Serbia. It looks like that's what they're going to do. And I just wonder what they would be like with a really top-quality striker because a lot of other good ingredients are there. OK. They just need a point against the already eliminated Costa Rica to progress to the knockout stage. 
Costa Rica, who incidentally have had a bit of a fraught week with the coach Oscar Ramirez apparently getting threats to his family over Costa Rica's performance. So that's uh, unlikely to have... Well, that's really disappointing. I know they haven't impressed quite the way they did at the last World Cup, but they held out till the 90th minute with Brazil. Yeah, I think they're quite... To me, they're quite a lovable team because they do defend in numbers, but contrary to a lot of the other defensive teams we've seen, I think of uh, Tunisia, for example... They're not dirty, they're fairly, uh, when they go forward, they do so slowly, but with a fair amount of thought and deliberation. And, you know, they haven't scored yet, so obviously they're not doing very well. Do you think they can? Can we get a World Cup where every team scores? I'm hopeful, yeah, that, that would be nice. Complete the set. All right then. Switzerland, anyway, they'll be taking on Costa Rica. The other game will be Serbia-Brazil. Which one are you going to be tuning into, Daniel? Uh, probably Serbia-Brazil, although mm. I was going to say with Group E, all the talk of, is of... England and Belgium kind of engineering positions in their group. Actually, the same could happen in Group E because um, Brazil on Switzerland obviously level on points, but given that Germany looked most likely to finish second in Group F, it's not a bad idea to finish second in this group. It sounds disrespectful to Mexico, but if Brazil were to draw and Switzerland beat Costa Rica, I'm not sure Chiche would be too worried um, about facing Mexico and going through that route. Uh, I'm not saying any shenanigans will take place, but there's certainly potential for some. All right. Two very different sides, Tom, Serbia and and Brazil. Serbia, to go through, need a win, effectively. A draw would be enough if Switzerland lose by two goals or more against Costa Rica, but effectively, Serbia need to beat Brazil. Can they do that? It's a tall order. Um, We spoke before about how Sweden will react to that demoralising defeat against Germany and Serbia obviously find themselves in a very similar position Um, they played a very full part in a really entertaining game against Switzerland uh, and and came out of it on the wrong side of the result I think what might help Brazil is that Serbia are more of an attacking team than the two teams they faced already we know that Serbia's main strength is is going forward with you know Alexander Mitrovic is having a good tournament. Uh, I think we've all been impressed by Sergei Milinkovic Savic. They've got players like Dusan Tadic as well, mm. and because the onus is on them to win, they will have to attack. We saw that Brazil really struggled to break down Costa Rica. You suspect they would much rather play a team who are going to come at them. I think it will be quite a physical game because Serbia are a big rugged team, particularly in defence. You think about Ivanovic and Kolarov in the two fullback positions coming up against Neymar and, and Willian, uh, which looks like it could be a bit of a mismatch certainly in terms of pace so I think this is a game that should play into Brazil's hands um, and it will be a tricky one for Serbia I think for for Serbia to get the result they need from this it would be a real transformative win Really? Because Mitrovic was making the same point that you were about the fact that Costa Rica gave Brazil problems Switzerland obviously uh, held them as, as well and he says I am confident that we will not Brazil out because you know if if Switzerland can do it then, I mean, that rugged back line that you were just describing then, you know, will, will, will Neymar be blubbing again come the final whistle? Well, I mean, there's a lot of self-belief, I think, in this Serbia team. And you've got these kind of battled hard, battle-hardened and rugged defenders. And then up front, you've got quite young guys like Mitrovic and Milinkovic-Savic who are just starting out and do have this fearlessness. But I'm not sure how far that takes you in a match like this against an opponent who have all the cards because they're in a better position in the table. So I think it'll be entertaining because Serbia have to come out and go for it and they've got talented attacking players. But ultimately, I think the fear has to be that 
that that will just play into Brazil's hands and, and that Brazil will have more space than they've had in their first two games. And as a result, we might see a little bit more of them going forward than we have up to now. One Another inter- really interesting battle is going to be Philip Coutinho against mm. Nemanja Matic because I think the Neymar histrionics and the Neymar circus during this tournament, and, and he hasn't hit his stride yet, has really helped Coutinho because it's exactly the same at Barcelona with, with Lionel Messi and with Luis Suarez. At Liverpool, he, he was almost becoming a little bit, not too big for his boots, but a little bit too big for the pond. And at international level, he's been brilliant in this tournament because he's been able to kind of dance behind or dance in front of the defence and behind the midfield and really find space in between those lines. But if there's one defensive midfielder who will stop that happening, it's Nemanja Matic. So I think that'll be really interesting because if, if Serbia don't stop Coutinho, then then Brazil could well have a bit of fun because, as Tom says, they'll have to go forward and they'll leave space behind. All right, that game and Switzerland's clash with Costa Rica coming up on Wednesday evening. Jack, I wonder if you have a little story or a little nugget of information to uh, round things off. Well, now you've asked so nicely, James. It's going to be interesting for Thiago Silva Ah. returning to Moscow. Earlier in his career, before he made his name at Milan, he had a brief period at Dinamo Moscow. Moved there in 2005. And it didn't go very well at all. He almost died from tuberculosis. Crikey. He spent four months quarantined in what his former manager described as a hospital from a horror film, only seeing two hospital assistants who could come in every now and again to give him food and change his sheets. And it made him... Why is TB, is it really contagious? Well, I think he had a bad version thereof. But yeah, it was a really traumatic experience for him. He's kind of opened up about it a couple of times since. But When they were diagnosing him, do you think the doctor said TB or not TB? That is the question. I'm just, you know, I'm on a Shakespeare thing this evening. Okay. Anyway, you go on with your... No, that's... We haven't noticed. <laughs> You've... It's very much over now. Right. Well, that, that will be emotional for him then. Excellent. Well, having discussed the football, let's now get the odds... On Wednesday's games, producer Ben has been speaking to Paddy Power. Thank you, Jimbo. Lee Price from Paddy Power, as usual, is on the line with me. Lee, the group games are coming to an end. They've been very exciting so far. What does Wednesday hold in store for us? It starts with South Korea versus Germany. Yeah, I wasn't sure at the start of the tournament. The group stage has been absolutely phenomenal. Drama almost every day. Uh, and the unexpected quite often, which sounds a bit cliche, sorry. South Korea, Germany, this would be a fairy tale if any result other than Germany win, but then we saw what happened last time out. Germany, a massive 1-6 to six to get the win here. South Korea, 16-1 to one to win this tie. Not much on it for them. 13-2 to two the draw, but Germany, the very heavy favourites. What about Mexico versus Sweden for the top of the group there? Yeah, Mexico, a surprise package, largely written off. Most interesting story around them being the drug smuggler. Um, but they're top of the group and they're 7-5 to five to beat Sweden and secure that 100% record. Sweden, of course, need a win to progress. They're 11-5 to five to get that victory. The draw, the same price. A tight match there. I'll be tempted by the draw, I think. Over to the later kickoffs then, Lee. It's Brazil versus Serbia and Switzerland versus Costa Rica. These are very, very finely poised. Yeah, and on paper, you think that's two really easy to call results, but... Actually, by the performances, not at all. Brazil uh, really need a victory, otherwise they're in real danger. They're 4-9, so odds on, obviously, to beat Serbia. Serbia have been very good, I think, uh, unlucky against Switzerland. They're 13-2 to to beat Brazil and potentially knock them out. It's 16-5, the draw there. Switzerland in the other match, they should definitely win this. Costa Rica, zero points, uh, zero reason to win. Switzerland, the 4-6 get the victory. Costa Rica, 11-2, to 23-10, the draw. I can see Switzerland topping this group. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com. It's 18 plus only. Be gamble aware.
org. And when the fun stops, stop. And tomorrow, Jack, you're back with us. Yes. With more of your fascinating... It's almost too much, details. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Cox will be joining us. And Adam Hurry as well. Football Oof. cliches. All right, Tom, you'll be back soon, I hope, as we head into the exciting so, yes. knockout stages. And Daniel, sorry, I'm sure you will be too. Sunday, I think. On Sunday. Mm. Look forward to it, in which we'll also be discussing, no doubt, a little bit about your new ebook. Indeed. Mm, nice. <laughs> Listeners, we're at The Totally Show on Twitter. We're also available via Facebook. Hopefully, you'll be joining us right here, though, come Wednesday evening or Thursday morning, whichever's more convenient for you. Have a super time in the meanwhile. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. Subscribe now and get the latest episode delivered right to your phone for free. And seeing as you're still here, here's an extract from the new Gazza in Italy audiobook. It's written by Daniel Storey, read by James Richardson and published by HarperCollins. Have a listen and if you like what you hear, you can download it from iTunes or Audible for just £4.99. Remember, it's exclusively an audiobook and it's called Gaza in Italy. Gascoigne soon crossed the line in the eyes of President Cragnotti. His first faux pas came when driving through Rome near the Stadio Olimpico with supporters surrounding his car. In his attempt to extricate himself from the crowd, Gascoigne ran over the leg of one supporter, leaving tyre marks and serious bruising. He gave the man his shirt as a means of tempering the situation, but the fan gave interviews to the press and Gascoigne received strong words from Cragnotti. When Cragnotti visited the club's training ground one day with a host of club officials, Gascoigne approached him and uttered the words, Tu figlia grande tette, your daughter has big tits. While the club officials stifled giggles, Cragnotti was understandably less than amused. Having your daughter treated as a sexual object by your record signing in front of your colleagues is not a good look for a business mogul and club owner. Worse was to come. In January 1993, Lazio hosted Juventus at the Stadio Olimpico in a game for which Gascoigne was injured. Before the match began, Gascoigne was sitting with England teammate David Platt, who played for Juventus at the time and was also injured, in the seats reserved for players and club officials. Players were not permitted by the club to talk to the press before the game, but a journalist from Rice Sport attempted to source a quote from Gascoigne. The obvious response, for anyone else at least, would have been to smile politely and ignore the question, or offer a non-committal noise to indicate that no comment would be given. In his wisdom, Gascoigne let out a burp that was broadcast live to the country on primetime television and replayed thousands of times over the subsequent days and weeks. It was the dimmest thing Gascoigne could have done. It may have been a silly, thoughtless joke to him, but the Italian public were horrified. The incident was debated in the Italian Parliament and a Minister for Tourism was asked to conduct an official inquiry. The insinuation, and you can see the point, was that Gascoigne was mocking Italian culture and the industry that was paying his wages. Were an Italian to do the same, there would be an outcry. But for a foreign footballer to disrespect his new country of residence was a scandal. Even Zoff, predisposed to defend Gascoigne at the time, admitted that it was not a good way to behave. What else could he say? Cragnotti was apoplectic. Not only had Gascoigne let himself down on national television, he had also brought the name of his club into disrepute. He had been wearing his Lazio club blazer, sitting in Lazio's VIP seats in Lazio's stadium. Gascoigne was summoned to meet the president for lunch, where he had the riot act read to him about what it meant to be a Lazio player and the standards that would be expected of him. 
Gascoigne was fined £9,000 by the club and the memory of that belch would last for a long time in Cragnotti's mind. He had taken a chance on Gascoigne, sticking with him despite injury, paying an unprecedented transfer fee and allowing the player to negotiate a higher salary than Cragnotti had intended. This was evidence, he felt, of Gascoigne throwing that trust back in his face. Injuries could be forgiven, for they were no fault of Gascoigne's, but insolence was to be frowned upon and forgiveness came less easy on that charge. He is uncontrollable at the moment, Cragnotti would eventually say in April 1994. He must understand that we live in a professional world where everyone wants to win. I have invested a lot of money, and this is an investment that should be respected. It was a world away from Cragnotti's glowing assessment of a year earlier. Whoever wants our Gaza should give up the idea that he will become available. He will be staying in Rome forever. If Cragnotti's outrage caught Gascoigne by surprise, it was nothing in comparison with the media fervour. In the highly paid world of Italian football, certain behaviour is not tolerated, an independent column read. Gaza has damaged the image of English football and that of the English. The belch made front-page headlines for days in Italy and pundits continued to analyse and denounce Gascoigne's behaviour. His sending off against Genoa five weeks later, just as the storm was dying down, only gave them more ammunition. Gascoigne had always harboured a deep mistrust of the written press, bar the odd individual exception. He believed them to be both parasitic and two-faced, hanging on to the coattails of his career in order to make money and offering faux-friendly words when they wanted an interview, only to crucify him at the drop of a hat and the lack of a back page. Furthermore, Gascoigne could not understand or fail to remember that everything he said would become a story. The press knew that if they hounded him for long enough, that a story would fall into their laps. You can see both sides of the equation. Gascoigne hated the media intrusion and there is no doubt that it went far beyond the pale of what is acceptable. There would be photographers camped outside his villa in Rome, taking pictures of Gascoigne and topless shots of Cheryl. And yet, the media knew that the English public wanted to read about Gascoigne. Gazamania was best reflected in the fascination for newspaper copy about Gascoigne on and off the pitch. To hear the full story of Gaza in Italy, download the exclusive audiobook on Audible or iTunes.